Welcome to another episode of Adoption, The Making of Me. I'm Louise Brown. And I'm Sarah Reinhardt. Make sure to find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook as Adoption, The Making of Me podcast. You can also find us at our website, adoptionthemakingofme.com. And please remember to subscribe, share, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Hello, Louise. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm okay. How are you? Good. Happy to be here. We are here for another chapter review of A.M. Holmes, The Mistress's Daughter. We have gotten to the point where she is now compelled to look for more information. As many of us get to that point. Yeah. The electronic anthropologist. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> or genealogist. The, no, anthropologist. Anthropologist. Well, anyway, what struck you? Everything. I had like a couple really big aha moments in this section that we're reviewing and discussing just some of her great writing. Maybe I've recently been doing this myself and I know about this whole family out there and they're not real to me because I don't know any of them except one person a little bit. And how she's just so torn on like digging in and then is it real and who are you? So the the first quote that kind of struck me from here, hold on, just this. I mean, this is all adoptees when we're doing searching, I think, and just delving into it a little bit or a lot. She says, coming from a position of having no history, having any history, even if it's the wrong history is fascinating. Every life lived is of interest. Yes. Because I like that. She went down all these dark holes where it's like, you're down a rabbit hole with the wrong grandparent or the, and then you're, you know, more about them than, you know, anybody you've ever known and who you were raised with. So just, it made me laugh because there was well, so that many. Was, I thought that was funny too, because mm-hmm. she said she hadn't been, you know, she's searching for her biological, but she hadn't done that with her adoptive family. And I thought, well, yeah, of course not. Like I didn't have a ton of curiosity about my adoptive family's you know, when did they come to the country? When did they do this? Because it had nothing to do with me. And I think I, I've i known that for a long, long time. Instinctively. Um, right. And then when it came to my biological family, oh, they came over in whatever year and they were first in Canada, then they were in, you know, so just it's a more of a connection, obviously. Yeah. It was just funny how you don't, like I didn't, that never occurred to me until many years later, like, oh, I'm, that's why I'm not that. Yeah, it's never that interested, you know. My family had the big genealogy like chart, and like my uncle did tons, and so I knew about it all growing up in my adopted family. And I spent summers there, and it was very. And I'm a history person, so I loved it. I knew more about it than like my brother and other people, which is so funny because it's not even my blood family. But I was always very on the outside of it, like a history, like almost like a a historical. But did you? I didn't own it. Right. I, I mean, did yeah. you did you know that you didn't own it? Because a little you know, bit I deep mean, down, yeah, I'd always wonder, like, well, that's neat for them, you know. Right. Oh my, yeah, yeah. And exactly. so I love how she sums it all, like just her words in it, you know. Like I don't know this part, bloodlines. I find myself more and more interested in the strangers I never knew. What you're saying in the blood relations that are unveiling themselves before me. I notice I am not as motivated to dig for history of the mother and father I grew up with. Right. That's it. Mm-hmm. I like this part. 
There is no escaping that I, what I am finding resonates. There is a hum of identification, a sense of wholeness and well-being. On a cellular level, it makes sense. It matches. And simultaneously, there's a kind of contradiction, a challenge to who I think I am, how I experience myself. The best way I can describe this experience, which eludes conventional language, is to say I think of this as the difference or dissonance between the unknown or dormant biological self that I ride with and the adopted adapted self that I became. Mm -hmm. The writing's like, <laughs> I know she's so good. There's a whole paragraph that really made me laugh when she was looking at the records of, you know, part of her ancestors. And she's like, these are people who own people and who sold or <laughs> gave them away. And, the, and then She's thinking, looking at these early settlers, wondering, like, what were they thinking? Why, having come from such incredible privilege, did they not do more with their lives? <laughs> yeah, it's just like they didn't do anything. <laughs> like, why didn't somebody become, you know, they had all this privilege and they came over here and, you know, they got here. They were one of the first people here, like, you know, from Europe. Like, why didn't someone become a president or <laughs> why didn't they start a nonprofit? Like, I love so that. I know. This part was, I was reading this to my husband last night. He said, oh, that's what you do with somebody else. I won't say on the thing, but it says, why do I need for them to be good, better than good, need for them to be great? Yeah. Like as as before we ever, many adoptees talk about this when they come on the podcast, you know, the fantasy, the ghost world that you make when you're young and you, you know, fantasize, like I've talked about how I thought I was an aster, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm from this, you're going to have this fairy tale ending. So that then when it's just like, oh, these are, you know, regular flawed people, <laughs> maybe perhaps average. That's a horrible thing to do this, you know, <laughs> average. No. Possibly. What do you mean? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I had um, to come from greatness. <laughs> exactly. I mean, what else could it be? Why else did I have to go through all this trauma if not to be more? You know, yeah. I, I'm just kind of verbalizing mm -hmm. sort of random thoughts. Yeah. Like, so she goes through a big search, you know, and this is when she's doing her search, it's the early 2000s. So she didn't, there wasn't DNA testing yet that was available to the public. So yeah, she's really having to go, which is how I found my half sister on my bio father's side in 2010, because it was prior to mm -hmm. DNA research or DNA testing. But Getting out the microfish. The microfish, yes. <laughs> and then finally she has to go, you know, then she realizes like that there's been a divorce. I think it's her on her mother's mm -hmm. side, her mother's mother, her mother's father. And so now she had, in order to get divorce record, there's some sketchy things. So she, now she's, we're <laughs> at the part where she's sent away, you know, requested access. So yeah, to kind of, it's exciting in some ways because it's like this key of who you are. And then when you get it, it's deflating and exciting. Like, how does she say you're depressed and excited all at once? Mm -hmm. And I've been yeah. like that, those late night you know, just the 2 a.m. You're so excited. And then later you're like, oh, and it makes you still feel you're not whole. You're really, I was thinking about this whole thing now, how everything's electronic. And it wasn't then when she was writing this, how it's almost like, almost like social media, how it can be very depressing and fun at the same time. And it's a, a way to feel engaged without really ever being engaged. So mm -hmm. I don't know if it's, 
I don't know if all the modern stuff is so great. There's one line I wanted to call out to you that I was like, oh, Sarah will totally relate to. This small part, there's a part of me that resents how hard I'm working to locate information that they have all lived with Mm -hmm. all along, meaning her adopted family, information that is theirs for the asking or anybody. her biological biological family. Yeah, like they already have all this and. And no one really cares so much. Sometimes when you have it, you just know it. I was with my husband and his family. Well, you take it for granted because. Take it for granted. Well, people who were not, you know, kept people as they're. Yep. Sometimes referred to often derogatorily in Twitter, I've noticed. <laughs> it's not even a thought nope. at all. I mean, it's just, it's not a thought until it happens to you, you know? So nobody can relate to it no. unless they've gone through it. There's not a person on the, they can't understand it. You can't just, understand not just knowing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Knowing where you come from. This was my dinner conversation last night after I do these readings. <laughs> Bill's always like, oh, great. Time for the book. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, well, we have a good guest coming up. I think everyone will like him. And I'll see you in a couple of minutes. See you soon. Bye. Bye. We have some exciting news to share. We are going weekly as of this episode. We're so happy to share that news with you because we've been trying to get there for a while and we have a lot of adoptees that want to tell their stories. So now we are able to do that. And that is because, Louise, I'll hand it over to you. We have a new exciting announcement to make. We have our first sponsor at S12F. And he is helping us out. He is a real angel supporter of ours. And we also have our wonderful Patreons we want to thank. Yes. Without the Patreons and without our new sponsor, we wouldn't be able to do this. So we are just really excited and we're not going to wait. We're just going to jump right into weekly. So make sure to subscribe so that you know we're coming to you weekly. Welcome back to another episode of Adoption Making of Me. Today, we have a guest whose wife actually found us but from an article about us that was on Next Avenue PBS. And she went to her husband and said, you need to listen to this podcast. And he binged it and reached out to us and excited to have him. We love when that happens. That's really like one of our favorite ways to that people find us. Garth Garrett, welcome. Thank you. Welcome, Garth. A shout out to your wife, Tricia. Yes. <laughs> she must have thought you needed it. <laughs> it. It is been a topic of conversation over the years that we've been together. Because of like your adoption issues, so to speak. Yeah. And in my case, I mean, like growing up, I did not think being adopted was an issue. I always knew that I was adopted. I, I remember things back as late as, as early as three. And I always knew I was adopted. Growing up, I thought it was like left hand versus right hand. And then in my 30s, I got into therapy for the first time. And as we were exploring my various issues, it came out that not only was it an issue, it was the issue, kind of the central driving issue of everything else that has followed since. I like that you had a therapist that recognize that. Right. We've talked often about how so many therapists do not or did not. And it wasn't initially, but it kind of like as we're doing our exploring, it just it came out after a while. It was like, oh yeah, this is more we dug into it, the more more is revealed. And I've had several therapists over the years, including one who specialized in adoption. 
and especially the current one, who's also, I can say, the best of a good bunch. It really has helped me dig deep into and find out what was going on, as well as kind of healing it. Of which I will say, binging your podcast and writing a letter to you was also a healing thing, because it was the first time I put down from beginning to end the whole story. Well, let's have our listeners tell our listeners, where were you born and what were the circumstances? I was born in Detroit, Michigan in 1953, and I was given for adoption immediately. And I was in foster care for five months, and then my parents adopted me. They had been married for 10 years, couldn't have kids, and my dad was in the army, so they decided to adopt and they finally were able to adopt me because they a couple of times started the process and then he'd get transferred, started the process again, he'd get transferred again. But finally, they were in one place long enough to complete the process and they adopted me and brought me home. My parents are, are both deceased and were wonderful people. They were classic Midwestern Depression era people, hardworking, responsible, honest, loyal not physically affectionate, not verbally affectionate, very, very stoic. So that kind of played a factor into it also. But they adopted me. And they, the reason I showed about them being stoic is that my parents' observation was they met my foster mother. And their impression was that it was a job. Baby cries, you pick it up, you feed it, you put it down. Baby cries, you pick it up to change the diapers, you put it down. That was the, the essence of the interaction. And it always struck me that if my stoic parents are having this emotional observation, <laughs> it must have been a pretty emotionally barren environment that they took me out. In fact, they said that for the first week that they had me, all I did was look around. So it took a week for me to smile. And were you quiet? You were probably quiet, just an observer. Very quiet. Just very, just like, you know, I, I think basically it was like, where the hell am I now? But after a while, you know, I settled down and... From all accounts, I, I was initially a, a very happy baby. And the oldest of my four sisters that I grew up with is 15 months younger than me. So they adopted five children? No, they adopted me and then had four biological children of oh. their own after oh. me. So it was a classic so, case. Yeah, it, it is. Just four isn't that classic, but <laughs> <laughs> usually it's one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was like, wait, how did that happen? <laughs> well, I need wow. And they went from one extreme. So they were in their, I think, 30, 31 when they adopted me. And the last of my sisters when my mom was 43. 1964, that was like really late. Yeah. So they went from old one parents. extreme to the other. They might have been emotionally barren, but they certainly weren't physically barren. <laughs> Not once they started. <laughs> and now, and, and, nowadays, that's pretty, like, if you're in Los Angeles, that's a normal age to have kids. But back oh, then, yeah, they're right. like the old parents, right? Yeah. 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 And I do want to say, my, my parents weren't emotionally barren. They uh, just, just weren't, yeah, but they weren't emotionally <laughs> expressive. Yeah. Now, I've met other people of my parents' generation who I'd probably would describe as emotionally barren, but yeah. they just had, had no tools and no cultural reference to express emotions. It just wasn't done at that time and in that part of the country. By the way, sometimes I just, you know, it's my comic <laughs> nature that uh, <laughs> just goes for a joke. Just going for a joke if I see one. Yeah. Uh, your, your, your person has my own heart. And then like, oh, what, what did I just say? <laughs> 
<laughs> Why is he trying to select me? <laughs> I thought uh, I thought it was funny. <laughs> it was great. So four sisters. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. And how was that? In retrospect, do you think there was any? Did you feel adopted, or like you said, it was like left hand, right hand? It didn't. Well, it, it's interesting because what my experience was growing up versus what I understand now. So to fill a little bit more of the story, when I was when my mom was pregnant and I was fourteen months old, she was making dinner and turned her back for a second. And as a toddler will do, I reached up and to see what was on top of the stove and pulled a uh, pot of boiling water down on myself hmm. and burned all the skin off my right shoulder. In fact, there's a, a picture with me with about a four-inch bandage. And I actually have, you can see in my right leg to this day where they took the skin graft off my leg to put it on my shoulder because there was no skin left. And hmm. for years, I was teased because I had leg hairs on my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> So that happened just before first of my sisters was born. And then when she was born, my mom went into a deep postpartum depression and was hospitalized mm. and went through a series of electroshock therapies. Yeah. So she eventually did come home. But what that meant is by the time I was 18 months old, I was on my fourth mother. I had my birth mother, my foster mother the mother that adopted me, and then the, the mother that came home from the hospital. What was she like? I'd asked my dad years later, you know, if mom was any different before and after the electric therapy. And he said, no, she was about the same. But when the oldest of my sisters was having a baby, my dad took her aside expressing his concern because she was like my mother. And he told her that our mother was never the same. So apparently completely changed her personality. Then being in the army, of course, we continued to move, move to France. My mom becomes pregnant and delivers not one, but two children. That was unknown to everybody until the birth occurred. (laughs) So they had taken an x-ray and apparently the twins had lined up just perfectly. So it looked like one baby on the x-ray. And in those days, you took one x-ray and that's all you did. Yeah, there's a baby there, you know, you were done. No ultrasounds yeah. and all that. They didn't have that then. My, my mom went through the same thing. She got pregnant after adopting my brother mm-hmm. and I and had twins mm-hmm. x-ray, which of course, they don't do x-rays now for <laughs> pregnant people. I mean, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so my, yeah, my parents going from one extreme to another. Now they have four children under four. And from a very young age, again, I remember three. And there was just always this feeling of something was wrong. That you were missing something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was something. missing something. Yeah. And part of that me is that when I was about three or four, I remember asking my dad, well, what does adoption mean? And he said, well, that means we went to the court and the judge said we could have you. And my three, four-year-old mind interpreted that as the court told them they had to take care of me. Oh. So, and this is where them being stoic and not explaining things and not being physically affectionate. And it's like it, it, but with my sister, they were, and then when the twins came along, you know, with these, you know, cute little babies and all the gooing and gushing, and it's like, how come I don't get any of this? Yeah. And the conclusion was, it's because the court told them they had to take me and I was an obligation. Years later, my dad gave me 
the original letters that he had had sent to his mom and my mom, mom's mom. And you can tell from the writing, they were actually very excited about having me. So the reality and my four-year-old interpretation were completely different. But added in with what we now know as the primal wound, it was a real difficult sort of thing. And I remember thinking, well, my real parents will come and get me. And then I'll be happy. You know, they'll love me and I'll be happy and everything will be fine. And along about somewhere about fours before we came back to the U.S., I realized they're not coming. And here I am and I'm stuck. This is just the way it is. I would have to say until I was July of my 43rd year that I would wake up every morning in emotional pain to the point where it physically hurt. I mean, it just hurt. Every day. Were you aware that that was emotional pain or did you, did you, no, you thought it was physical pain. And in fact, I thought this is how everybody woke up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then it'd be like as a kid spending the night at, you know, at some friend's house and they could wake up in the morning and be all happy and ready to go. And they'd be like, huh? Yeah. You know, this is, this is a strange reaction. Or I remember one time mother staying at some kid's house and the mother came in and came some sort of, you know, strict direction, you know, go to bed eight o'clock or something like that. And my comments like, Oh, your, your mom is really, you know, your mom's really mean. And he was like, no, she just, she loves us. She's just giving us, you know, telling us what's what. And it was, I had no frame of reference on how that kind of stuff went. And so I just assumed it was me, you know, something wrong with me. I was given up. The court forced my parents to take me. I wasn't given a hug. In retrospect, now I realize I mean, what I really wanted was just to be hugged. Yeah, mm-hmm. just to be loved and touched. Yeah. To, were to the girls, touched. were your parents affectionate with them? More affectionate with them and particularly the twins. But, right, because you didn't have postpartum depression after the twins? No. no. And so, what about the youngest girl? So she comes along, she's 11 years younger than me. Mm. And she, she and I are very close. But it's kind of like we were the oddballs at the two ends of the sibling spectrum because she came along so much later in life that my, I feel like my parents were tired, basically. Yeah. You know, having four kids under four and then four teenagers all living in the house at the same time. And then there was my youngest sister who was seven years younger than the twins. So just enough of an age gap that... She wasn't really included with her older sister's stuff. She was the annoying little sister that was tagging along all the time. So she kind of got the short end of the stick. And you two became close. Yeah. I'm curious, your sister who was born 15 months after you, Mm -hmm. so your mother went into the hospital with postpartum, so they had a separation. Yeah. Does Mm -hmm. she have any of abandonment stuff from that separation? Right away from her mother? I don't know what she would say to that. We've never discussed it. It was interesting in writing my my story to you is when I realized I had two primal wounds. The first one with birth. And then the second one when my mom went through her postpartum depression. And my sister had a primal wound. Now, she didn't lose her biological mother. But the woman who gave birth to her and the woman who came home from the hospital three months later was not the same person. And I think that... Probably did affect my sister. She's very much like my mother. That's what you said, that your dad was concerned. Yeah. 
And then how were your teenage years? Did you struggle in teenage yeah, years and like other adoptees yes. and yeah. acting yeah. out? Part of it being, well, I do want to tell one story about my, those are my sisters, Yes, which is that when I was about five, so at that point, we were living in Kansas and as an army brat, I pinpoint how old I was by, by where I was. Mm. Okay. I was in Kansas. So I was five and six, you know, this happened in Georgia. So that was seven and eight. This happened in France. I was three and four. You know, the kind Gosh, of you really just, yeah, have a life of instability, like really constant, mm-hmm. no yeah. foundation, really, just right. none whatsoever. And my sister and I were arguing about something, and she turns to me and says, "Well, you're not really part of this family anyway." Mm, yeah, and unbeknownst to her, my mom was standing nearby and heard heard this in a very cold voice, said. Don't ever say that again. And my sister is, is, is a very strong personality, is very willing to give you your opinion. When she was four, she was willing to give you her opinion. <laughs> and this was the one time that you could just tell she wanted to say something. And it's like, no, this one I can't cross. And indeed, it was never, ever mentioned again in any kind of negative way. So that was one of the positive memories was is that my mom establishing, no, you do not say that to him. Nonetheless, unfortunately, between all the emotional instability around my birth and early years, and then being in the military, we kept moving around all the time. And while my dad was in the army, that was actually okay, because we knew the other military families and the kids in the diplomatic corps, all who knew that we're here today, who knows where we're going to be tomorrow. So you'd walk and say, hi, how are you? And immediately sit down and start playing because you didn't know which kids were going to be moved tomorrow. So everybody was accepted immediately. And then my dad retired from the army and moved to Ohio because he was getting up high enough in rank that he would start. They would start to transfer him every year. And education was really important to him, so he didn't want me to go to four high schools in four years, like he was watching happen to some of his other fellow colleague officers happen to their families. So he retired so that. I would go to one high school, which I did. We moved to uh, Kent, Ohio, into a place where everybody had lived there for like three, four generations. Everybody's relationships and friendships have been formed by third grade. Yeah, it's almost worse. I arrived in in the middle of middle school, in eighth Mm. grade, and in all honesty, never, ever felt accepted. Never felt like I belonged. Being a military brat, I could get along with the different groups. So at the time, I was a jock. I got along with the jocks. At free periods, I tend to hang out with the freaks. I could talk. I liked. I played piano, so I could talk and interact with the kids in the band. But I didn't ever feel like I belonged to one of those groups. It was always is, superficial. That's how adoptees, you know, that chameleon that yeah. thing that many adoptees share. In between adopt being adopted and military, it, I had that in spades. So I was very good on the surface, but never, ever feeling like I belonged. So the high school years were really very, very difficult. College was better because it was kind of everybody was starting over again. So now people were were open for the first time. Did you stay in Ohio for college? Yeah, I went to Kent State University, which was in the town that my dad chose that because he was looking at putting five kids through college. Yeah. So he got a university job, so he got a cheaper tuition, which was a, a smart move on his part. Mm-hmm. That's how he wound up at Kent State. And in my junior year, 
the local regional newspaper, the Akron Beacon Journal, had a Sunday magazine spread of several pages on adoption. And this was, this was 1974, I think. What kind of spread was it? Like just well, about it, adoption? or About adoption, but it, I think it was ahead of its time because it was talking about that adoption had more of an impact on people than we gave credit for. That is, yeah. And talking about the different experiences and a couple of people who had been reunited and what their story was like. You know, what some of the uh, issues came out because, I mean, as you guys talk, know about, you know, the, uh, the, the scoop and grab orientation. Yeah, the baby scoop area. Yeah. yeah. You know, and the idea was that, you know, the baby doesn't know anything, so it's not going to matter. So no reason to tell it anything. So my parents actually were in their own way unique in that I always knew I was adopted. I always knew I was part of the family. I read this article and I just like, I mean, it took me 45 minutes to read it and finished it. My parents were in, in, in the living room and I asked them, well, what would you think if I ever went to search for my biological parents? And this guy shrugged his shoulders and said, well, we just kind of assumed you'd always do that someday. Oh, they did. They said yeah. that. But that was the end of the discussion. Yeah, just like that's so <laughs> yeah. Yeah. not not offering to help or anything. No. Just like, well, no, you know, no. good luck to you. Yeah, just like, yeah. You know, so it was a you know, two-sentence exchange. No expressions of support, nor opposition. Just like you know, we we just assumed we we're going to do it, and that was the end of the discussion. And it was no like, well, how do you feel about reading that article? Or, you know, <laughs> you know, no, no, nothing inquisitive. I didn't raise the issue, so they didn't ask. Which is, again was very Midwestern, particularly for their for their generation. Mm-hmm. I had grandparents from that Missouri, and well, they just they didn't ask anything. Yeah. Hello, I'm from here. Yes, yeah. I know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My husband's family, too. We joke about it sometimes. Like, they think both of us just talk too much, you know, too mm-hmm. many feelings. Well, there's a, a funny story. So when my dad, dad finally retired, you know, for good, quit working, he and my mom moved to Phoenix. And my oldest sister moved to Phoenix also. So there were some times that she and my dad would drive out here to see me. This was after my mom had passed away. And... She would complain that, that my dad didn't say anything. It's a six-hour drive. <laughs> and he said nothing. Quiet. You know, quiet. And so she brought it up and it's just like, well, you know, it's like, say something. <laughs> the next time they came to visit me, they, she tells the story that they leave, you know, they, they leave Phoenix and he's chatting away with her for about half an hour. And then says, okay, have we talked enough now? <laughs> <laughs> and was silent the rest of the trip. And for our listeners, you're in California, by the way. Yeah. So again, six hours. Landed. Yeah. So did you then start your search? No, I didn't. I would have to say that I was very numb and fragmented emotionally. Mm -hmm. It took a lot of therapy to piece together how I was then. I actually became interested in, in my late 30s here in the Los Angeles area. I met the first woman that I, I truly, truly wanted to marry for a number of reasons, a lot of which I realized in retrospect had to do with my emotional damage got in the way of the relationship. It didn't work out, and I spiraled into a really dark place, a very painful place. And for some reason, the thought occurs to me like, well, if I'm feeling this much pain over this, what did I feel... When I lost my biological mother, 
because by this time I had taken a, a seminar on adoption that was led by a woman, a therapist who specialized in adoption issues. And she's the one who introduced me to the primal wound. And I had read the primal wound. Then I had this breakup. And that's how I kind of put the two, that's why the, how the question came up. If I'm feeling this and this is not the primal wound, what did the primal wound feel like? So you were sort of like getting into the meat of it all, but just not feeling, feeling the, yeah, yeah the depth. Yeah. So that's when I began my search. So I'm in my late 30s at this point, approaching 40. So I reached out to the adoption agency. I searched for the adoption agency. It turns out they were out of business, but I found out the organization that had taken over them who had all the records. Was it a private adoption or was it it through an agency? It was Michigan Children's Aid Society. I think it was a nonprofit. And this, a different nonprofit now had their records. And I had from the uh, work with the adoption therapist, you know, learned about some of the different groups like Alma, et cetera. There's a, a funny side story. At one point, she thought it'd be a good idea, and she sent me to a group of birth mothers, support group for birth mothers for women who had given up their children. And I was sitting there listening to these for a couple hours to these stories about women who one woman had found her, her daughter and had gone to a bunch of her high school basketball games but wasn't able, wasn't ready yet to introduce herself, didn't think it was the right time. And some really painful, painful stories about what it was like to give up their child, what it did to their lives, the difficulties they had finding their children, et cetera. None of these women had had a successful reunion at that point. Mm. And at the end of this meeting, I share my story. How I was given up at birth and... Actually, I've, I, got, I got the story a little bit out of order, I just realized, so pardon me for that. I did first search for my biological mother with, through the agency, and they explained how it works. And they, I filled the paperwork, and they went to work on it, and then the work, my caseworker, whose name was Christy, called me up one day to say, well, we found where your biological mother is. And unfortunately, the way we work is, is that we have a contact at Social Security. And that's how we find out where the person is. And then we have a whole process. You know, we write a letter first and a follow-up letter and a phone call. They had a whole process. But apparently, the person who was their contact at Social Security was out sick that day. And they had somebody else covering the desk. Got the request from the agency. So he just decides to call up my biological mother and say, hey, I get this request, you know, your biological son wants contact. Do you want to talk to him? She says no and hangs up the phone. Mm. He jumps like three steps. Yeah. And the agency, I mean, she was full of apologies. Said, like, this is not how we normally handle it for exactly this reason. And now that my biological mother had said no, we were done. Oh, yeah. You know, that she had said no. There was no more searching. There was, they could not legally or ethically have more contact with her. And that's when... The uh, adoption therapist sent me to this birth mother's group, and I'm sharing them this story. When I finish telling them the story, this huge howling and shrieking goes up, and they just like this cacophony of, no, no way. Somebody got in the way. Somebody got to her. There, somebody's lying. Somebody's interfering with this. Uh-huh. They could not accept the idea that a birth mother had a chance to reunite with their birth child and turned it down. Uh, needless to say, I did not go back to that group after that. <laughs> it was a one-time one meeting. I was going to say, that's pretty interesting you were there. 
did, they, did you feel supported from that? How did you feel from being with no, all these women? No, I didn't. The therapist thought, the reason she sent me, she, that she thought they would respond warmly to me. It's like, here, they're looking for a biological child. I'm looking for a biological mother. They would kind of naturally want to nurture me. Instead of it was just this huge, it was almost a rejection. Like a disruptor. You're a big yeah. Disruptor. <laughs> it, it disrupted their story too much. Yeah. And there was no, it was too vulnerable and painful to go back another time. And certainly none of them reached out to me. So I just you know, stated that. I'm fascinated that you had therapists that were trying these things, to be honest. it's <laughs> Even though there's, it's a little bit like out there doing that, mm-hmm. at least they were addressing some things with you. Yeah. And this particular therapist, again, her specialty was adoption issues. She herself was adopted. And I worked with her for about maybe six months. And then she got pregnant and stopped her practice, which wound up being kind of like another abandonment. Oh, yeah. You know, it's just like every time I turn around and start to trust someone, they wind up going away in one form or another. And so you're in your late 30s at this point, almost yeah. 40. Mm-hmm. What happened next? So a couple of years after that, I started to get curious about my biological father. So I called up the same agency, got the same caseworker and told her what I wanted to do. And she said, well, we can't do that because he's your alleged biological father. Because his name's not on your birth certificate, so he's not legally your biological father. But it turns out when I first contacted them, I'd asked them for whatever non-identifying information they could give me. And in the records they sent to me, their records had a sentence saying that my biological father very much wanted to marry my biological mother, but her mother said she was too dependent on her daughter for her daughter to get married. As I've learned more stories over the years about my biological grandmother, she was quite the character, (laughs) both positive and negative. So I point out to them that their record said he knew of me and wanted to take care of me. She said, well, let me go talk to my manager. And she called me back a couple of days and said, well, okay, we'll search for him based upon their own records that they were going to search for him. And it took a little while being a nonprofit. You know, they're not like the, the, the profit researchers can find somebody in a couple of weeks. Yeah. But the nonprofit people, it takes several months up to a year. And then finally, one day, Christy calls up and says, well, we found a biological brother. And he didn't seem to be particularly interested in it, but he shared the information with his sister, who was interested, you know, and was I open to contact with her. But of course I was. And a few nights later, I get a phone call and she identifies herself. And the opening sentence is, so what makes you think that my father is your father? <laughs> it was very hostile. <laughs> she's hostile, uh, but she's open. <laughs> at least you have that right i mean it's an in <laughs> yeah she, she, at least she called i mean initially i, I wouldn't i would not have said she was open maybe curious. it's the end it's a little inroad yeah yeah and it's kind of like well because the adoption agency told me so <laughs> yeah and then i explained you know i came from my own stable family i have a job i'm emotionally stable which is a white lie but <laughs> you know i wasn't crazy <laughs> and i wasn't looking for any financial information or financial aspects with them. I wasn't assuming that'd be part of their family just because we're biologically related. I was simply looking to find out the story of what happened as to why I was given up. And then then she softened quite a bit. 
and we had a, a series of phone calls and she told me about my biological father who unfortunately had already passed by the time we were talking interestingly enough he was he died the same year that my daughter was born how many kids uh, i was many, wondering if you had kids yeah how many kids <laughs> yeah. do you have i have one daughter who is married and had five grandchildren nice oh, yeah that must be fun yeah it is in fact, it's interesting going back to that Portuguese word, sausage, mm-hmm. but the longing, the lingering longing, and how in a number of the podcasts, people have talked about when they held their biological child for the first time, they were like, this is my first biological relative. Mm-hmm. And that was wonderful for me to hear because it gave vocabulary to what I had experienced but didn't have words for. And that, like everything, is a bit of a story here, too. I was dating her mother in New York, where I lived and worked, and she had moved to Utah, then called up after she'd moved to Utah to say that she was pregnant and had met another man, too. (laughs) So when my daughter was born, I flew out that day. And it was she was born on an emergency cesarean basis. I'd actually gotten a call one morning at six in the morning from a woman who says, hi, you don't know me. I'm sorry to call you and tell you this, but I'm the next door neighbor. She's bleeding. They've gone to the hospital. Neither one's expected to live through the morning. Mm. <laughs> and this, so, this yeah. is not Trisha. No, no, this is not Trisha. <laughs> Just making sure. Yep. And a few hours later, my daughter's mother called and said, well, yeah, the neighbor's a bit, bit dramatic. But she did spend six weeks in the hospital because she had placenta previa, which turned out to be a good thing because my daughter was born six weeks early on an emergency cesarean that would not have been successful if she had not been in the hospital at the time everything went south. So knowing all that, and then I somehow managed to get a flight from New York to Salt Lake City that same day. So first time I held my daughter, she was 18 hours old, and we were on the fifth floor of the hospital. And as I was holding her, I just had this like this image of like being a tree and the roots were going through my legs and through the floor and all the floors of the hospital through the basement into the ground and spreading out like the roots of an oak tree. That's beautiful. But I was not aware of the fact that I was being my first biological relative until I heard your podcast. I never put those two things never, together. Yeah. Connected that. Yeah. So back to the phone call with your <laughs> biological sister. I've been waiting to hear that. <laughs> so it turns out that there were two brothers and two sisters. They all had had drug and alcohol problems. Two got sober and two didn't. And the two pairs no longer talked to each other. They were in upstate Michigan. My biological father had lost an eye in a high school football game by a freak accident. And then in his mid-20s, late 20s, I think it was, I had an industrial accident and lost sight in the other eye. Oh, gosh. So he was- How old was he when you were born? 23. My biological mother was 21. And the story of how they met is my eccentric grandmother was out drinking with her daughter. She wanted to go to the bar, so she wouldn't go go to the bar by alone, so she brought her kid with her. (laughs) So this is the same grandmother who went- let her get married. Yes. Mm-hmm. And my biological father was the bartender. Uh, they started dating and she got pregnant. And this is where interesting stories come out. So 
The story I eventually got from my biological mother through my sister was that she was pregnant. Biological father wanted nothing to do with her, wouldn't help her whatsoever. She even went and asked his family for $100 to go to a home for an unwed mothers. And they all turned her down, had nothing to do with her, completely abandoned and shunned her. So it's completely false what's on your documents. Well, but that's the question. Yeah. Because that was her story. And the document said that he wanted to get married. In fact, I was reading it today. It said he, he very much wanted to marry your biological mother, which I just find who, interesting. Who told him that, though? If he wasn't, was that maybe the story that the adoption agency put together for your adoptive parents so that, that you know, spinning the story to make it look like it wasn't a terrible situation you came from? I don't know. I don't think so. Because the way the rest of the information is written, it's very, very factual. You know, your biological father was five foot six, you know, 176 pound, that stocky athletic built. Your biological mother was five foot one, blonde hair and auburn eyes, played the piano. So it was all very factual. It was no sense of, and it was just, just thrown in the middle of it all. So and and how, how did your sister, did I miss this part? How did your sister know the story? Well, she didn't know that part. Oh, she, okay. So with the paternal biological sister, I was news to them. Oh, okay. It, you know, okay. No, nobody had any information or knowledge of me, including their mother. Oh, um, right. Because she came fact, along shortly after. Yeah, she came along afterwards. And the one thing that helps give credence to what the agency had written is that in the same paragraph, they said that shortly after my birth, my biological mother married her old high school sweetheart which I have subsequently confirmed with my biological sisters. So she has you and she's not allowed to you know, keep you. And right. he is off. He marries somebody else. And she goes back and marries her high school sweetheart. Right. Okay. And the suspicion is, is that he's the one that probably paid for the unwed home, unwed mother's home. But there's no proof of that. Not, her, that- not her mother who... Uh- no. No. Jeez. <laughs> so cool. so I'm I'm taking it that she was not alive when you found your other sister? Actually, she was. Okay. So you met her? Nope, never met her. She's not open to it? She wasn't open to it. So I guess let me go ahead and finish the biological father, and then I'll, yeah. I'll kind of keep going chronologically. So on my paternal side, my father's side, I had several conversations, learned about him, and we were beginning to develop a bit of a relationship and I got, so I got his story. He unfortunately died at 54 of colon cancer, multiple cancers. So he had a, a difficult and not a happy life. And again, his wife and his children, none of them knew anything about me. I think that's part of the reason why she was so initially hostile when she called up, because it's like none of us ever heard about this. And his mother apparently was still alive fairly fairly gone in years, and had a dragon lady sister who was the guardian, who had made it very clear that none of them were to talk to her about this situation, to ask her. So even though she was still alive, there was no way to find out, did she know anything? And unfortunately, not too long after, a few weeks later, the sister promised to send some photographs of my biological father, etc., and never did. And never she never, from. she never has. You've never heard. Yeah, and never heard from her again. That's too bad. 
And I have tried a couple of times to try to find her again, but without success. And this, one of the few things I truly regret is I let that go. And kind of figuring like, you know, she doesn't want contact with me. I'm a, I just have to honor it instead of pursuing it and asking her repeatedly or at least bugging her pictures. Nothing on Facebook now these days? Her name is pretty common. I've tried that, but it's... it's <laughs> <laughs> and what about Ancestry's DNA? <laughs> I've just started doing that really since I started listening to your podcast, so just in the last couple of months. Okay, so you might have more to tell us at yeah. some point down the line. At some point. <laughs> yes. So that's the story of what I know about my biological father. And then in, in the end of the 90s, beginning of 2000, I had a dream about my biological mother, the only dream I've ever had about her. And in the dream, I'm like sitting in front of her and she's looking around for me, but she can't see me. So she's clearly looking for me. So I called up the agency, got the same woman, Christy. This is not the third time over a span of 10 years. And it was like, That's this, crazy. Is sound, <laughs> this is going to sound weird, but I had this dream. So I thought I'd call and, and just share it with you and see if you'd reconsider. And I have to change. This one wasn't the late 90s. It was the late 2000s, like 2008 or nine, somewhere in there. And she said, well, her standard response has always been, let me talk to my manager. Called back a couple of days later and said, well, you know, we have nothing in writing. Poor Christy never advanced her career. I was going to say, I bet Christy's really the manager. <laughs> I have the theory that she's really the manager. And she's like 30 years later. And like, Let me call you back. Like you go to the car dealer and the salesman wants to go talk to his yeah, manager. Yeah, yeah. There's something going on there. But she called oh, back and said, well, funny. we have nothing in writing. And we really only have this one substitute worker's word that she didn't want to contact. So we'll search for her. And they said, once again, you know, we're nonprofit, be patient. So it was about a year later that she called and said, well, we found your biological mother's sister. And we talked to her. And she said, well, that, that your biological mother had had a stroke and couldn't talk on the phone anymore. But that her daughter, my sister, might be interested or would be interested. So we'll contact her. And then indeed... A week later or so, they call back again to say that your maternal sister is very open to talking to you. So one night, day, we had a phone call. And same, you know, giving her the same spiel, you know, I've come from a stable place. I don't assume anything. I don't need anything. I frankly just want to know the story. That's what I like, would like is the story. And she said, well, this is news. So let me take a little time to digest it because she knew nothing about me. Was she the only daughter? Let me hold off on that. Let me hold off on that because because Uh it's part of the story. And she calls back. We start phone calling and emailing. And exact opposite, very warm, immediately warm and open and sharing this story and talking about what her childhood was like, et cetera. And she told me how she went and asked our mom about me. Is it true that we have a brother? And our mom's response was, yes, and I don't want to talk about it. So my sister says, okay, well, that's her response. But you know what? Give me a little bit of time. I'll get you the story. And a couple of weeks later, calls up and says, okay, here's the story, according to our mom, which is the story of that she you know, got pregnant, was spurned by the biological father, had to go off to the unwed mother's home. And indeed, she did marry her high school sweetheart. And what had happened there is, is that she went to high school in Maine 
was had met and was very much in love with this guy. And our grandmother, who at one point with a 10-year-old child ran a speakeasy out of her apartment. <laughs> so, you know, it's like, you know, they'd have strangers coming knocking on their door between 2 and 6 a.m. every day. And eventually the police came to grandma and said, okay, we're doing this only because you got a kid. Stop. Because next time we will arrest you and take you and take you away and put the kid in foster care. So she moved back to Michigan, which is where they were originally from. So that's how I put together how she had a high school sweetheart and how, you know, why she married him so quickly. So maybe your biological dad did spurn her. Could be. Yeah. I mean, according um, to her, she has a lot of like, you know, anger about it or. Yeah. And she really, uh, mom really did have anger because I had shared with my sister the story of my biological father, which she shared with our mother whose response was good, two down, one to go. Because the high school sweetheart she had married had died. And my sister says, well, I have to tell you, you know, we have another sister. Who's but their I, father? Was it the high school sweetheart? That becomes part of the story. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she said, I will tell our sister and introduce you, but you got to let me do it in my own way. This was like in November. I was like, okay, strange request, but so... It turns out on Super Bowl Sunday, the sisters and their families had a history of getting together. So the older sister takes the younger one aside and says, I got to tell you something. We have a brother. And also, my father is not your father. Which tells her that on the same day. Yeah, in the, <laughs> in the same paragraph. <laughs> so the high school sweetheart was the older sister's father. And there's nine year gap between the two sisters. And the younger sister's father was somebody completely different but apparently was an alcoholic and shortly after the younger sister was born threw him out and just basically swore the older sister to secrecy it'd just be easier to have one biological father for the two of them sounds like there was a lot of substance abuse and you know with the grandmother and the speakeasy and lots of i can understand like your mother being shut down and and yeah disconnected, I guess, mm-hmm. is the word I'm yeah, looking for, yeah. given the chaos of her childhood. Exactly. And her childhood was very chaotic. Her father, my biological grandfather, was a physician and apparently very verbally abusive mm-hmm. to his wife and to a lesser degree, his children. He had two girls. And he died when my mother was 13. And she apparently adored him. So it was just like everything was really convoluted in that family. So here's my sister at Super Bowl Sunday. Instead of watching the game, is is processing that she has a brother she never knew about, and her father's not her father; it's somebody else. Have you met? Not to jump forward, but have you met both sisters in person? Yes, mm-hmm. and have an extremely warm, friendly relation. In fact, the younger one called me this morning. She was oh. driving from Massachusetts to New Jersey, and called just to chat away. I told her about today. We got to talking about our mom and. Like Sarah, you're saying about alcohol abuse, and, and she was saying that she thought our mom at one point probably relied too heavily on alcohol. And from all their stories, she was a wonderful mother to the two sisters. Oh, that's good. Yeah, they that's nice to hear. had a warm, loving childhood. And she did and, most of that on her own. Yeah. Maybe that was better. But she clearly had an issue with men and 
after the third father got thrown out, she was never in another relationship, never went on a date, just swore off men from that point on. And just couldn't bring herself to meet you? Nope. That part makes me sad. Yeah, that was very difficult. And she was alive for a couple of years. She had had cancer and had a lung removed. And six months after I appear on the screen on the horizon, her cancer came back. And understandably, my sisters didn't want to push the issue too much because now Mm -hmm. they were fighting for health and for her life. And indeed, she did die. And I never met her. Did she know that your sisters were seeing you and in contact with you? I think so. Because again, the three of them were very close and talked all the time. So interestingly enough, my younger sister was sharing this morning that she never talked to her mother about her biological father, much less about me, because it's it was also new. And by the time everybody stopped swirling emotionally, her cancer came back, and now the health issues took precedence. Yeah, so she um, she can't bring all the dirt up. No. So she has your, has your sister yeah. found her father? Yeah, and she did that. She did her own search found them, has a couple of siblings that way. He's also passed away. And she's kind of close with one, met the other one, but nothing really developed there. So where do they all live? New Jersey and Massachusetts. And for example, when my oldest of my bio sisters turned 60, what she wanted to do was to have the family go to Vegas, which included myself and Tricia. And we went and spent a long weekend six of us in Vegas. And that was extraordinarily heartwarming to me because it's like, you know, she's going, I want to spend it with my family in Vegas. And it included me. That's nice. I like hearing that you're having some of that. What about your adopted sisters? Are you close with them or have they met anybody? They've met the two sisters. When Trisha and I got married in 2014, my bio sisters came to the wedding and met my sisters and my dad. My mom had already passed away at that point so that they all know each other. How was your dad with that? Your, your adopted dad, your dad? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> he didn't, didn't say, say anything. Didn't <laughs> say anything. <laughs> I mean, for example, when he was, he died in 2019 at the age of 97, lived a long ripe age, but a year before when he was, you know, clearly in the beginning of the end, I mean, I, one day I asked him, you know, how do you feel about death and the prospect of dying? It's like, well, it's an event. <laughs> End of discussion. And any other attempts to talk about it would be just like, yeah. Yeah. Stop yeah, there. Sometimes, yeah, you just <laughs> sometimes have to accept that that's who they are. And your daughter, where does she, she in Utah still or is she yeah. elsewhere? Mm-hmm. She's, yeah. And she has met my bio sisters who have taken a great interest in her and the grandchildren. Of the grandchildren, four to five have a rare genetic disorder called Cohen syndrome. Mm. So there's a thousand known cases in the world. Oh, and my daughter has, and my daughter has four of them. And not the fifth one. The middle one is the other end. She's a carrier, but doesn't actually have the syndrome. Yeah. And she's the other end of the spectrum. So for example, my daughter brought her down to meet my parents, her great-grandparents, when she was about six months old. To say hi, how are you? And then I think she'd been about 14 months, so about you know, about eight months later, my mom was dying. And so my daughter was coming down and the granddaughter was still nursing, so she had to bring her. And 
they're talking, you know, at this point she's 14 months old or something like that. And it's like, where are we going? Well, we're going to see Papa and Didi. Oh, are they the ones with the flag? <laughs> My parents had flags outside their house. She remembered that from being so little? Yeah. Huh. Wow. And, and the, other, the other great story is that when she was about four, because they lived out in the country in a little small hamlet with dirt roads. You know, so it's a very safe environment. And her cousins lived down the road. So she, one day she goes, Mom, you know, can I go visit my cousins? It's like, sure. Okay, can I have a bottle of water to take me with me so I don't get dehydrated on the way? <laughs> and it's like, how's a four-year-old know the word dehydrated? <laughs> we hydrate our children now a lot. That's <laughs> <laughs> Well, it sounds like everything has really, you know, you, with the exception of your biological father's side, you know, it sounds like a really good and close situation and family, and it's all turned out yeah. really well. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm really happy to hear that. I really, really appreciate you sharing your story and coming yeah. on and telling us. And I really hope you find out stuff on D Ancestry. That's and, what I think. I let think us that's know. Not, that's you know, not maybe you will find, find them. Yeah. And yeah. So there's you more have that's going to gonna us, go on. <laughs> have to keep mm -hmm. us posted. Well, I'd be more than happy to do that. Thank you so much, Garth. I really enjoyed hearing your story and glad you reached out to us. Well, thank you. And thanks for everything you're doing. As I said, it's been very impactful in my life and has really helped, has helped in my healing. Writing to you was a huge thing because I shared that with all my family oh, and closest did. friends. And I mean, like a lot of them wrote back and like, we had no idea. That's big, actually, that you yeah. did that. I haven't even done that. That's a big thing. Well, I'm really <laughs> glad you, I mean, I felt honored that this has happened. I know me yeah. too. We impacted you. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. That we yeah. had such an impact. It's always great to hear that. You never know, yeah. you know? Well, definitely so. And again, I keep listening to the podcast because I, I have literally taken something positive away from every one of them. I'm glad. Thank we you. do too. It's really yeah. been such a life changer. For I know us, I'm going to so. think about you tonight and your whole story. It's like in my head, I'm, I saw more things I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so we're going to, we're going to stay in touch with you. Yes. I appreciate that. Thanks for coming on, Garth. Thanks, Thank Garth. you so much. Thank you. Bye. Okay. See you again. Bye now. Bye. Well, that was a very big, drawn-out story. I mean, he has so many layers. Yeah, he really does. It was, you know, sad about his birth. Well, of course, I think maybe being sick yeah. probably took away the strength. I was happy to hear that she was a lovely woman and, and a good mother and, Me too. you know, and it probably was just bad timing and circumstances, but it doesn't take away the pain. No, she obviously had a lot of shame and anger around it. And I felt lonely for his childhood, even though, you know, he had nice parents and sisters and a stable home. It just, just how he said he woke up every day, sad, mm -hmm. like every day mm -hmm. for how many years did he say until he was 43 years old? You well, know. when he finally connected yes. that it was, that it was emotional pain. Sweet. I related to that in mm -hmm. a way. Yeah. And he did a lot of really cool going into therapy and at a young therapist. age, like yeah. knowing, you know, uh, nice to hear that. Cause that yes. would have been the eighties, I guess that the therapist was aware of adoption or, you know, they got to the root of it. And yeah. that was nice. Cause you know, even in the nineties and early two thousands, I wasn't, my no. therapists weren't, weren't talking about that and aware of it, or it was just a piece of it. Wasn't the whole thing. So. Yeah. It sounds like he really had some good guidance along the way. Right. I really always like that when I hear, you know, a young man who goes ahead and seeks therapy in that era, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not now, you know, 
We're talking a different era. So oh, different and, generation. The, and the episode was uh, Emma Stevens when she has that word about Portuguese word for longing and mm-hmm. that he related that with our podcast that he had never, he couldn't pinpoint it. Yes. That touched me just that, yeah. you know, that people are listening and growing from these things is, is and that it's healing for them and it's helping. Yeah. I really, I really like hearing that, that we're yeah. a part of that, you know, me too. And thanks yeah. Trisha, because yes, <laughs> Trisha, <laughs> <laughs> thanks for introducing us to Garth. Well, what do we say? Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next See you time. next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at the Making of Me podcast. And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.